Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. This is an interesting uh, view this morning. You guys are all uh, in different places, so uh, so it may uh, so if it makes you feel awkward to be sitting somewhere different, just know it makes me feel awkward to be looking at you all sitting somewhere different. And so, uh, um, yeah. so, so I was looking for that video, and I ran across another video that I can't show because it was too long, but it featured a guy that was who spent 24 hours. Uh, living in the same space as a fully grown uh, elephant. And uh, again, it was too long, but as you can imagine, everything an elephant does is big. Use your imagination. Um, And and it just goes to show you, I mean, even a little baby elephant like that, it's really hard to ignore the elephant in the room when when it is here. Of course, we we talk about the elephant in the room, and that's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for describing something that's going on, but we awkwardly don't want to deal with it. For instance, the elephant in the room this morning is that some of y'all are sitting in some really strange location in the church, and you're not even sure you're in the same church this morning as a consequence. So, so the elephant in the room is, is obvious, but one of the things preaching through books of the Bible does to us is, is that there are passages that we encounter that challenge us to deal with some of the elephants in the room. If I preach topically, it'd be easy to deal with uh, dodge the hard stuff, but I believe this, that God has given us every word of this book. And the passages that are particularly challenging or the passages that, that deal with subject matter that's a little too uncomfortable, they're still there for our good and for our consideration. I'm really disappointed Jacob didn't try to tackle it for the, uh, for the kiddos there. It would have been uh, made for kids' worship to be inter- interesting. Uh, so as we move into chapter 4 today, Paul is very much challenging us today to deal with a very large elephant that's in the room. As I deal with more and more Christian parents, particularly Christian parents of younger children, there's what I'm learning is an increasing number of of awkward encounters with people out in the wild who don't conform to certain standards that uh, that you may or, or may not be used to. For example, there's nothing quite like your young child staring at the waiter slash waitress at the restaurant trying to figure out if it is, in fact, a waiter or a waitress. Remember the first time that we encountered this as a family? We were eating at a restaurant over in Trenton, uh, one that you guys are probably very familiar with, and the individual who brought our food out to us, we weren't sure. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, uh, and the kids, as you can imagine, kids who are somewhat sheltered begin to have that awkward snicker, you know, that, that, awkward, that awkward uncertainty that goes along with it. Uh, maybe you've encountered this, the homosexual couple that's engaged in very public displays of affection in the, in the, out in the world. And I don't know about your, your kids, but I don't know my kids that, that the filter for kids is, is a lot less developed as the filter is for grown-ups. And you can almost feel the question as it's starting to bubble up inside the child's brain. The, the question is beginning to, to come out. And you know that the kid is going to speak louder than you want them to. And you as a parent, all you can do is try to stop the question. Now, truth be told, 
Disney, Netflix, and the political class has really come alongside Christian parents and done them a real solid. What do I mean? Give your kids a few hours of media consumption and they'll confront these images and more in just a short amount of time. Children's shows today routinely feature characters that don't conform to traditional understanding of male and, fe- uh, and female. And so when they see these behaviors in public, we're actually not as surprised as we once were because we've been conditioned to think that everything's okay, everything's fine. The woman standing on the podium to get her medal after placing first at the swim meet is not actually a woman at all, but we're actually being conditioned to think that this is, this is normal, this is okay, this is reasonable in a modern society. Nothing to see here, folks, move right along. Today our kids go to school and they're confronted with these things even from their peers. Whether it's a high school prom where young men show up wearing prom dresses, or even in our middle school hallways where 6th, 7th, and 8th graders identify with all of the various manifestations of the LGBTQ spectrum. If you don't believe me, if you think this is just sensationalized media reporting, I challenge you to talk to any one of our educators in middle and high school or talk to even the students who attend those schools and they will confirm for you that this is not just media sensationalism, this is a regular experience in the hallways of our schools right here in Walker County. It is Teacher Appreciation Week in so many of our schools. We need to be sure to appreciate our Christian educators who are confronting this on a regular, consistent basis. Since everyone's talking about Taylor Swift right now, social media is lit up with concert photos. Some, uh, I know people who've been to Taylor Swift concerts, and, and I know this is going to come as a shock to you. I don't have a lot of Taylor Swift music on my regular listening rotation. Um, and so I do have a middle schooler, though, and I was being schooled on some of Swifty's latest hits in this conversation. And one of the things I've learned in, in, my, in my Taylor Swift 101 class is that she's not afraid to talk about the elephant in the room. One of, my, one of her most popular songs currently has this chorus. Foster, if you'll get the band up here and lead them in this chorus, that'd be... No? Okay. <clears throat> I'll do my best. Uh, You are somebody we don't know, but you're coming at my friends like a missile. Why are you mad? When you could be glad. Now, understand glad is not glad like happy. Glad is actually an acronym for uh, the world's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer media advocacy organization. In the lyrics to the song, it actually spells out G-L-A-A-D in all caps, so it's not about being happy. Um, She continues, sunshine on the street at the parade, but you would rather be in the dark ages. Making that sign must have taken all night. You just need to take several seats and try to restore the peace and control your urges to scream about all the people you hate because shade never made anybody less gay. Taylor Swift. Like so many in media, If you look at this stuff through a biblical lens, ladies and gentlemen, you are the problem. If you look at this through any framework that is scriptural in nature, you're the problem, not anything else. So we're all trying to figure this out. This is all new. It's all changed in the blink of an eye. And while all this is going on and we're so distracted and focused on all of that, we're we're ignoring the rampant promiscuity among even the heterosexual community. If we're honest... 
we've moved the needle on these other things so far, things like an unmarried couple living together seems almost non-controversial today. For example, as your pastor, I will not perform a wedding ceremony for a couple that is cohabiting together. I will not perform a wedding for a young couple that is actively living together without them moving out. But in this day and time, I am the problem for being stuck in the dark ages. It is not the other way around. Now, we may not like to hear this, but ladies and gentlemen, we live in a perverted society. We are obsessed with sexuality. So many of our hottest political debates today are first and foremost birthed out of this obsession that has absolutely taken hold of our society. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the church, it's wise that we begin taking this elephant in the room seriously and actively having a conversation about this elephant that is in the room. If you just consider how much has changed in the last seven years since the Obergefell decision, let's be honest, If our society survives, I don't believe it will be recognizable to us in 25 years. Now, some will hear this, and they will say that this is bigotry, homophobia, transphobia, alarmism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in all seriousness, this is just the simple recognition that we are moving faster and faster towards what I consider to be a very real impasse. Because you cannot have one faction in society that demands acceptance from another faction in society that says this does not align with my religious virtues. The two things are not compatible. One group looking through a biblical lens cannot say this, while the other group looking through a secular lens says this, those two things are not compatible, and one demands acceptance from the other, those two things will not be able to coexist. However, as we navigate this strange new world, we would be wise to turn to our Bibles to see how the early church handled these things. You say, Pastor, the early church didn't deal with these things. Uh, King Solomon wisely said there is nothing new under the sun, and so the early church did, in fact, deal with these things. They may not have shown up in the same way that it shows up today. There certainly weren't hormone-blocking drugs and surgeries and all those sort of things that exist today. The issues we're dealing with today may seem new, and they may seem unusually accelerated, but may we not wear historical blinders. These ancient cultures like the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Romans, they were certainly no strangers to the perverse. Living several centuries even before the Apostle Paul's time, a man named Demosthenes, he explained his situation this way. He said, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and we have wives to bear us legitimate children. That's just the the everyday existence in this world in which we find our Bibles coming from. And so much of the perversion of the ancient world was actually cloaked in religious devotion. Even in the city of Thessalonica, where we have been discussing for these last few months, the cult of Kabiri of Samothrace was was a religious cult there of a Greek god sanctioned sexual relationships that were not, would not be welcome in any sort of Christian sexual ethic. And so even the church at Thessalonica struggled with these things. And this is the church that was birthed out of this culture. And all of these churches are birthed out of some of these most perverse cultures of the ancient world. And one thing we need to recognize, the Bible doesn't shy away from dealing with these things, and neither should we. Because if we're not dealing with it, I can assure you that your kids are learning lots from Google 
and they're learning lots from their peers, and they're learning lots from people that you don't want them teaching. We had our men's breakfast yesterday, and Coach Kenny Dallas was speaking, and he was talking about our young people today, that you as a Christian parent can have all the blocks on the phone. You can have all of the things safeguarding the phone, all the, all the protections on the phone, and you can think that your child is insulated from the problem. The issue is, is they've got six friends sitting around them whose parents don't have blocks on the phone and they can see it and experience it right there. Most children's first encounter with pornography is in second grade, and it typically happens on a school bus. That is the reality of the world in which we live today. So it would be wise for us as the church to actually deal with this and speak to this in a way that is consistent with a biblical virtue and a biblical worldview. So this morning, may we turn our attention to chapter four of 1 Thessalonians and spend a few moments speaking to this elephant in the room. If you've got your Bibles open, hope you're excited about where we're going. Let's stand together and read these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, beginning there in verse one. Finally, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that your word challenges us in difficult issues. But I thank you, God, that you did not lead us into a world that is confused and did not leave us ill-equipped. But, God, you have prepared us with your people. You, you have prepared us as your people. You have given us your word, and you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us be wise in a lost generation. God, may we speak well to these things today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul's letters, there's a pattern that shows up a lot. The first half of his letters are almost always theological in nature, sometimes personal, as it takes that tone in this first letter to the Thessalonians. But the second half of his letters almost always get to some really clear, straightforward application, as he does here in chapter 4. Because all of this is true, is what Paul is saying, because all I've said to you is true beforehand, now it has these consequences. Because what I've said to you is true, this then is how you should go and live. And that pattern holds true here in 1 Thessalonians. It goes from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and the tone changes considerably. Chapter 4 begins with this phrase, finally then, brothers, you've heard the first part, what does it now mean for your life? Why does this matter? And the first thing that we need to say to the church is this. Our walk with Christ is governed by a revealed ethic. What does that mean? Our walk with Christ is governed by a revealed ethic. I love the fact that we as Christians have a tremendous amount of freedom. 
You know, there, there's so many things that we have freedom about. We have freedom about what we wear. We have freedom about, about just so many different things. But in spite of all the freedom that we have, we recognize that that freedom is restrained. I once heard somebody say, we have the freedom like a locomotive has on the, on the train tracks. That locomotive can go and go as far as the train tracks will take it, but it is restrained by the tracks. What happens if a locomotive gets off the track? Bad things. Bad things. So we have that restraint, but we also have the freedom to, to exercise that, uh, our life in Christ. We don't have the liberty to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We don't get to parade around flaunting our salvation while engaging in flagrant sin. We have freedom, but it's restraint. Today we have this thing called liberal or progressive Christianity, and it wants to distance modern Christianity from the biblically revealed ethic of being a Christian. It says that I'm a Christian, I get to do whatever I want. Now, now hear me in this, that's like saying that I'm on Weight Watchers, but I get to eat as many points as I want. Okay, if you don't know how Weight Watchers works, you sign up and, and they tell you how many points you can eat. And that slice of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory got a lot of points in there. Like you don't get to eat the rest of the day or the next day or the next day. But if you follow the guidelines, you know, you, you, in theory, you start to lose weight because you're keeping within the point total that they've assigned. You don't get to say, I'm on Weight Watchers and I get to eat as many points as, as I want. You might do that, but let me tell you this, you're not going to be very good at Weight Watchers. If you want to do that, just give me the money and, and do your thing. You're not going to be very good at Weight Watchers. If you ignore the very basis of Weight Watchers, can you really say you're involved in the program? Like, you're just giving money away. You can't do that. Paul makes this crystal clear. We walk to please God. Christian, your life is intended to be pleasing to God. You wake up in the morning, the first thing on your mind should be, my life today is intended to be pleasing to God. And we understand what that looks like because we've been given instructions for what a life pleasing to God actually looks like. And it is revealed to us. It is an ethic that is made known to us. We are not making it up as we go. Now, we might be ignoring parts of it, but we don't get to invent new morality and new ethics as we go. We are not perfect, but we do have a standard that we abide by. We do have a perfect standard that we are called to emulate. It is fixed. It is revealed to us by God. God has made it known to us. It is perfect in its revelation to us. So if you want to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God, you walk according to the revelation of God, not contrary to it. If pleasing God means I walk this way, I certainly don't have the liberty to walk this way unless I want to be displeasing to God. He said, this is the path you should walk. Any other path is displeasing. Don't go the other way. Go the way that God has prescribed. Now, if you're paying attention, then you can already see that what we're talking about here runs absolutely contrary to the pattern of this world where we just get to make things up as we go and change them on the fly. Listen, all you gotta do is pay attention a little bit. We're just making stuff up now. We're, we're just making things up as we go. That which was taboo yesterday, today we're kinda okay with it. Tomorrow we celebrate it. That's the pattern 
that we see showing up in our world today. But if it is revealed to us by our creator, if it is revealed to us by our God, then it doesn't get to shift around as the winds blow. We don't have the convenience of our, of our revealed word just changing as, as culture changes. It is given to us by God. It is fixed by God. It is revealed to us by God. And this is where we are rapidly approaching an unavoidable conflict because we read the Bible and say, this is what God says. And the world over here says, I don't care what God says. And there comes a point where those two worldviews can't live side by side with one another. Therein lies our problem. The New Testament provides us with a very straightforward sexual ethic. This is not going to be popular, and this, is going to, this, is, this, this could get us banned on YouTube, what I'm about to say. But the New Testament is very straightforward with this. I didn't write it, so if you don't like it, Your issue is not with me. Your issue is with your creator who sets the standard. Verse 3, it says, This is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. We've talked about this word before. The Greek word used here is where we get our word pornography from. It's what I call a biblical junk drawer word. We talked about this the other night on Wednesday night prayer meeting. It's a junk drawer word. It's a word where everything gets dumped that doesn't have a home. It's a catch-all. It's intended to cover all of the stuff outside of what God intended. And God's intention, listen, ladies and gentlemen, God's intention is beautiful. What God has designed is good. What God has given to us is pleasing. What God has given to us and revealed to us is a blessing. But God's intention, hear me correctly here, is that sexual intimacy is reserved for monogamous heterosexual marriage. Thus says the Lord. Again, that's not hateful, that's not bigoted, that's not homophobic, transphobic, or any kind of phobic. It is simply what God says, not what the church says. We talk about it all the time. We're against this. We're opposed to this. We don't like this. But church, we gotta do a better job of painting the beautiful picture of what we're for and what God has given to us, those train tracks, is a blessing, it's a delight, it's a joy. It is for our good. It is not restrictive or evil. We know this to be true when we encounter it in the scriptures. This is what God says. We know it to be good when anecdotally from our experiences. And we know it to be good from a position of statistics. We know that the best possible outcome for children in the home today is to be with a mama and a daddy who are married and who, are lo- who are love-, love each other and are committed to each other. We know that's the best outcome for children today. Does that mean that children can't thrive in other environments? Not at all. But we know what the best outcome is. And the further we move away from the standard, the, the more fishy we get in the results. It's just a fact. The further we get away from what God has said, the greater the likelihood is for unfortunate outcomes. Does that mean that every kid who comes from a home that's never experienced divorce or any of those things, that every kid who comes out of that is great? No, because sin is sin, and sin is real, and sin affects everybody. But just statistics tell us that the best possible outcome is what God has given to us. And Paul isn't naive here. He's not saying this and putting his blinders on and saying, oh, they're gonna get this right. No. Paul says we've gotta know how to control our bodies in holiness and honor. No doubt. 
There were Christians who came out of these cults in Thessalonica and their patterns had to change. Before Jesus, their behavior was not godly. It shouldn't have been expected to be. But when they met Jesus, suddenly new patterns had to develop. And you and I both know that those patterns we had before we met Jesus, those patterns still cry out for attention. You get in that place and you hear the old man or the old woman saying, hey, do you remember when you were like this? They still cry out asking for our attention. And so what do we have to do? We have to learn self-control. We have to learn to, to put those things to death. Again, though, this is contrary to those prevailing winds of our day. Things like self-control, self-discipline, abstaining from pleasure, those are not good things for us today. We don't want to do that today. If it feels good, do it. If, it. if it feels good, go for it. But that's not the character of a cross-centered life. A cross-centered life says that anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We don't like self-denial because self is probably the most potent idol that we have in our lives. But that self is exactly what we have to crucify on the regular. Paul goes on, reminding us that holiness requires a clear distinction between the church and the world. Paul says there in verse five, you don't act in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There is a distinction here. We can't change the patterns of this world. Did y'all realize that? You can get on Facebook and you can say all the things you wanna say on Facebook and you aren't going to change the patterns of the world. You can vote for whichever elected representative you think represents your views the best and I can almost promise you that, that we're not stepping back from the direction we've taken. I can almost guarantee that we're not going back in that direction. We aren't going to change the patterns of this world because guess what? I was conformed to the patterns of this world. And in order for me to change, what had to happen? I had to have a radical encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ who wrecked me, transformed me, changed me, made me a new creature. I was born again through Jesus and that was the only way that I could be transformed from the pattern of this world. And that is true for every one of you who are in Christ. You were conformed to the pattern of this world until Jesus changed your life and set you free. If the world lacks Jesus, how in the world can we expect the world to conform to a biblical morality? We can't. We can write all the laws. We can ban drag queen story hour. We can ban cross-sex hormones. We can ban transgender surgery. We can ban gay marriage. We can ban all the things, but the law doesn't change the sickness because perversion isn't a legal problem. It's a heart problem. Law doesn't change hearts. We certainly wish it did, but it is very clear. We've seen recently that Roe v. Wade was overturned. 
and conservative Christians, everybody rejoiced. Roe v. Wade's overturned. There's no more abortion. We've been fussing and fighting now since Roe v. Wade was overturned in more ways than we've ever fussed and fought before. Because now it's not just a national issue. People suddenly are, are arguing about abortion pills and things like that. When Roe v. Wade got overturned, the nation didn't suddenly say, you know what, babies are all okay now. Instead, we've been fussing and fighting in so many different ways since that happened. The heart of a murderer isn't suddenly softened because a state passes a gun control bill. That guy that wants to kill somebody, I don't care if you outlaw every single gun, take BB guns off the shelf at Walmart, that murderer whose heart is inclined towards killing will still kill because law doesn't change hearts. Jesus does. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that we're using our outrage at the world's transgressions to distract us from looking at our own. We're getting outraged like this over here and that over there. The whole time we're like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Don't look over here. Look over there. Don't look at the health of our marriages. Look over there. Whatever you do, don't look at our internet search histories. Look over there. The video I referenced earlier about the man who spent the night with the elephant, there's a point in the video where people got really nervous because a tiger had been spotted around the compound there. I don't encounter tigers on a regular basis out in the wild, so I guess that would be a nerve-wracking experience. But the guy that's doing the video is living in the compound, in the room with an elephant. And he's super, super nervous about the tiger on the outside, and that tiger on the outside almost eclipses the fact that he's sleeping next to an elephant on the inside. We should beware that we not be so focused on the tiger outside that we ignore the elephant in the room next to us. We're behaving in almost the same way. There's a tiger in the street, but there's a problem in the room next to us. And church, we've got to do better. We must do better. We cannot change the pathway the culture is taking. But I want to tell you this. We can take a long, hard look at our own house. I cannot control my neighbor's lawn. But I can certainly make sure that my lawn is well kept. The church is called to walk in holiness in honor, in contrast to the wickedness of this world. We're not simply called to a lesser degree of wickedness. We, we think as long as it's private, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, that it's okay. But listen, ladies and gentlemen, that logic doesn't hold up. It's like a moral libertarianism. I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt you. But that doesn't line up with what God is saying here in calling us to holiness. We should be careful that we do not become like that modern Pharisee who stands up to pray in the temple. Thank God I'm not like that homosexual over there. You may not be like the homosexual, but if your browser is filled with pornography, we need not think that we are any better than they are. But we also need to understand this. We've always got work to do. Jump with me back to verse 1. Notice what Paul says here. I think it's very important that we hear what he says here. He tells the church, 
I urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how you ought to please God just as you were doing. The church is working towards this. There is progress being made. They heard what they should be doing and they are working towards what they should be doing, but he keeps going. He says, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. Well, that almost sounds like an oxymoron. If you're doing it, how can you do it more and more? Because Paul understands something here that, that, that we're not going to be perfect in every circumstance, every time, every place. This may be one of the most significant things that he says here. In other words, he says, you're doing this, you're doing great, but you gotta keep working on it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a sin-sick world that is characterized by all sorts of immorality and misbehavior. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we have to constantly wage war against the flesh in this regard. As soon as we let our guard down, the opportunity for failure will show up in a heartbeat. A season of struggle in our marriage is all it takes for the enemy to sneak in undetected and wreak havoc. A moment of boredom and loneliness is, is all it takes for us to click one link too far. And we have stumbled into failure. And we may be doing okay today. But that doesn't mean that we're immune tomorrow. We must constantly be on our guard. And this is an area where God doesn't mince words. The word of God isn't afraid of any elephant in the room. The word of God understands the danger of ignoring it. And so as a consequence, it doesn't ignore it. It faces it head on and confronts it as it ought. And because it does, then neither should we. The world outside is not ignoring it. Taylor Swift isn't ignoring it. Your kid's peers in the hallway aren't ignoring it. The kid riding next to your kid on the bus isn't ignoring it. And neither should we. In so many ways, the world in which we live today, see the elephant, decorate the elephant, Celebrate the elephant, dare I say even worship the elephant. But we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must call it for what it is. And Paul ends this section with clear words of caution and warning. Some of the most serious words I think Paul uses in his letters. He, he talks about the fact that God takes this behavior seriously. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that they have been warned. You've been warned. This is real. You've got to pay attention to this. And because they've been warned, we've been warned as well. God hasn't called us for impurity. He has called us to holiness. And God intends that there would be a distinction between us and the world. That is what holiness means in verse 7, that we are set apart, that we are different. For the Christian high school student, hear me in this. God is looking at you be different than your peers. That is not an unre unrealistic expectation. God wants you to be different from your unsaved peers. Even if that makes you weird, even if that makes you made fun of, God wants you to be different, to be holy, to be set apart, to not be like they are. This may cost you some relationships, but again, it is made crystal clear to us in verse 8. 
if you pursue the patterns of this world, you might indeed preserve a human relationship. But pursuing the world's pattern shows a complete disregard for God. And God gives us something that no one else can. He gives us the Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. God lives in us if we're in Christ. He dwells within us through the presence of his Spirit. And he is empowering us to live lives of obedience and discipline and control. And when you go beyond that and override that and ignore that, you are thumbing your nose to God's good gift. And it doesn't have to be that way. God does not call us to holiness and then leave us alone to sort it out and figure it out on our own. He provides us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the word of God. He gives us the church. He's done everything he needs to do to guide us into holiness. We just have to maximize our use of the gifts that he has provided. And if you fail along the way, how many of us haven't? Would all the perfect people please stand? Okay, good. So if you failed along the way, that's okay. You know the standard. Keep working on it. Keep going towards holiness. Keep walking in that pathway. You know the pathway you're supposed to go. If you got off the path, get back on it. It's called repentance. And through repentance, God can restore that which is broken. The stories over and over again of how God has restored broken things through the act of repentance are incredible. People who've gone sideways in their life, by repentance, they've gotten right back where they're supposed to be, and God's done great and awesome and mighty things through them. So if you've been that person who's gotten off track, you got hung up in porn, you got caught in, in some marriage issues, you've done some, some dumb stuff along the way, that's okay. God is prepared to walk you away from that and walk you in a new path of righteousness to set you on a new pathway where you can look at others and say, don't do what I did, do what I'm doing now because God is good and he is leading me into holiness. God can use you in incredible ways. But you gotta look at it and say, I'm not going down that road anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I had a professor in seminary who was a family, licensed family counselor she was talking about some of the problems that people get into in today's world. She was talking about, uh, this will date me a little bit, but uh, she was talking about that she had one particular client uh, in her counseling practice who had a pornography addiction. And he would be triggered and tempted by the sound of a modem running. Now, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the internet wasn't on all the time. And in order to get on the internet, you had to go into this little thing on the computer and click dial, and the computer would make all these humming and chirping sounds in the background until it finally connected, unless somebody picked the phone up in the other part of the house, and you would hear, you've got mail. Y'all remember that? This particular guy struggled with a pornography addiction, and in order to break his addiction, he had to turn off the internet completely and cut the modem sounds because the modem sounds got his heart pumping. And he had to turn it off. But for him, it was worth it to kill that temptation, to kill that desire that he could walk in holiness. You've been down that pathway, what's it gonna take to break that pattern, to break that tendency, to break those urges? I promise you this, don't know what the answer is for you but I know God's willing to walk with you through it. Would you join me in prayer, please?
Father, I'm grateful for your word, even for challenging texts that speak into difficult seasons and difficult circumstances. Lord, the world in which we live is flawed in so many ways. There's so much that's wrong. So much sin that's so pervasive. And as your people, God, we know that you want us to walk in holiness and to be set apart. God, I pray that the story we tell would be so different from the one the world tells, and it would be so much better. Lord, we we know what we're supposed to be against. God, help us to remember what we're to be for, and that we would be able to tell that beautiful, beautiful story Father, I pray for any who are here today who are wrestling through these things. God, whether it be the temptation of pornography, whether it be the the failure of a marriage, whether it just be the, the ongoing temptation to be in places that we ought not be and do things that we ought not do. May we have the courage today to walk a different pathway, that we would deny self, that we would find self-control, and that we'd be obedient to Jesus in all things. God, set us apart today. At the same time, Lord, let us love those around us, God. So many times our conservative media is conditioning us to hate those who are struggling through these things. But Lord, may we hate sin and love sinners. And may we see people as image bearers of a holy God who are in need of redemption through Jesus. God, we're grateful for your word and for the clarity with which it speaks. May we respond to it well today. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.